0: All right, Seattle. Hey, it's
1: time for a happy hour radio. So glad you joined me right here every night. Oh, not every night. Every Saturday night, uh, 6 to 7 o'clock on 570 KVI. I'm your host, Christopher Chan, advanced sommelier, and your weekend wine guy. And, uh, well, let's see. The pharmacists of partying, if you get it right. At, uh, not farting, but partying. Um, It's graduation season. I know Father's Day was last weekend, but I know those graduates are probably out having a good time. And and here's a little uh, tip from a person who graduated a couple times and and certainly partied way too hard. Uh, There's a product out there, and I get asked to try products all the time, and and I do, but I don't always talk about them because I'm not really sold on them. But this one I was really really impressed with. Uh, It's called um, What to Drink Before You Drink. And this is kind of like a little safety net to help you uh before it was just a big order of french fries that's all we had when i was growing up before you go out to that uh, red cup uh kegger and in the park um but that's what we would do but these days now uh before you go out and if you're in the business like me you're probably entertaining going to wine dinners or uh hosting tastings and things like that and sometimes you know night after night can catch up to you um especially because uh alcohol has that little um Thing called, uh, tolerance that sort of works, uh, against, uh, your better judgment. But I've got, uh, the pharmacist, the man who created the CEO and co-founder, uh, John Mansour. Um, he has produced this, uh, really cool, uh, what we'll call it, a health aid, a, a supplement, or if you will, but we'll find out. Um, it's what to drink before you drink. Uh, John Mansour. Hey, welcome to Happy Hour. How you doing? I'm doing great. Happy Saturday night. Um, I know that I, I got your products here a couple of weeks ago, and uh, I have to admit, me being a veteran drinker, a uh, uh, an expert, a professional by <laughs> trade, um, it's rarely that. It's very rare that I um, actually. I know where my limits are, even though uh, I did do do tend to push those limits on occasion, especially when I was in Vegas a little bit ago. Um, it seems to happen quite easily, but I did try your product, and I have to say this. I felt I did feel better, and that was odd because I would usually take some Advil before, but that's not always healthy for your kidneys and your liver and your stomach. Um, But let's talk about this. You are the CEO and co-founder of What to Drink Before You Drink. How did you get started on this idea?
2: Well, really, I have to credit my business partner. It was his his idea. You know, he'd been thinking about, um, you know, how can you feel better the next day after drinking. Uh, He's in the wine and spirits business, just like uh, yourself. And, you know, you, like you mentioned, you're entertaining or you're being entertained and, you know, you can't really turn it down when you're in the business. <laughs> and so, you know, sure. night overnight, overnight, you know, it's it's still, you you know, you have an enjoyable time and, and what what have you. But um, your body lets you know something different when you wake up. And so uh, he he just said, hey, you know, I've got all these responsibilities. I've got a wife. I've got kids. I've got spreadsheets i got to look at. You know, how do I wake up feeling good? And, um, you know, he said, is there a way? And I said, absolutely. I can make you something. And uh, that was four years ago, a little bit over four years ago. And uh, and, and here we are with uh, our product in the can and on a shelf, you know, kind of across the U.S. So
1: Well, I like the idea. Well, let's talk about what alcohol does. I remember when we first see alcohol, if you went to a private school, you probably had some frogs uh, in a bunch of, uh, what do you call it, denatured alcohol, right? Um, but alcohol affects the body in several ways. Tell us what the alcohol does.
2: The short version is um, you know, alcohol is not uh, considered useful to the body. Um, when it sees alcohol, it says to itself, hey, here's this uh, substance, I need to break it down um, because I don't need it and I need to get it out of the body. So the best way to do that is to break it into pieces uh, that are more manageable for the body to be able to handle, process, and remove. Uh, so in that process, though, alcohol is broken down really into two uh, smaller parts but those two smaller parts are actually more toxic to the body than alcohol itself. Wow. And what happens is uh, the body um, has certain repercussions, certain uh, short-term and long-term damages depending on you know how often you drink.
3: <laughs> and so,
2: you know, some of the short-term damages are what we know, uh, you know, the general public knows is a hangover. You have, you know, uh, uh, dry mouth, you have de- uh, you know, you're dehydrated. Uh, you you have light sensitivity, sensitivity, yeah, red eyes. You got it. Queasy. You have all these these um, end symptoms, if you will, and that happens from kind of the havoc that those um, you know uh, byproducts cause in the body, and that happens for, through the liver, into the kidneys, to the bladder, and out, and um, and so that's kind of uh, the short version, if you will, of what happens. The body just is trying to find a way to get rid of alcohol.
1: Okay. Well, it's funny how some kids are trying to get a lot of alcohol while the body's trying to get rid of it all. Um, and so when you think about dehydration, of course, uh, you have a headache, which means, is that part of dehydration or is that constriction of the blood vessels or, or what is that? What is the headache?
2: So, yeah, so it is constriction of the blood vessels, but in this case, what um, more than likely is the cause of the headache when you wake up after feeling, after drinking uh, the night before or the day before. Um, what happens is, um, you know, the byproducts and also alcohol itself are similar, you know, and I guess in concepts like bleach, um, the, blo- <laughs> the body, in order to keep it from causing damage, um, it, it wants to dilute it. So it does that by taking all the fluids it can from anywhere that it can in the body to dilute it inside of your uh, inside of your bladder, right? And so uh, part of the places it takes the fluid from are your brain. And so um, once the uh, fluid is removed from the the brain, uh, your brain acts like a sponge, you know, just like a dry sponge. It actually shrinks, and um, it, once it shrinks, it's actually causing the brain to get smaller inside of the cavity, inside of your cranium, and so it pulls on uh, all of your uh, vessels, causing uh, pain or causing a uh-huh. headache. And so part of it is the blood vessel construction, but also in this case it's because the brain uh, itself is actually shrinking uh, because the fluids have been lost
1: i'm shrinking help me <laughs> uh, that's exactly. so very alice in wonderland kind of thing um yeah. well this is pretty cool so uh, i know that there are several things out there that there uh, sort of tonics that people or pills uh um, that people take uh some remedies uh, old school um but you you actually put science behind it you're a pharmacist by trade so you have some research and science behind you um tell me how did you what was the first iteration of this idea that you produced
2: First iteration is actually it's not too far off um, of where we landed. Um, uh, the the real difference uh, between the first and kind of where we ended up was actually um, uh, describing how it should be taken. Uh, that's really the major differences. But the beginning uh, mix versus this mix, um, as far as the recipe, some of it just had to do with what can actually be in a liquid and sit on a shelf and sit in a can. And so some ingredients had to be exchanged for other ingredients. Uh, maybe we had, for example, let's say we had uh, vitamin E. Okay, well, that doesn't work well in a solution and doesn't sit in the suspension in a can for, you know, whatever. Um, so we would have to exchange it for two other items that work similar in in, uh, in effect, maybe different pathways, what have you. But the real difference was, um, and what we found uh, to be different between the, what we did when we first started versus what we ended with was the directions. And really that had to do with how we were going to stay true to what the body does, what science tells us. Whether or not it was sexy, whether or not it was something uh, that sounded good or, you know, was easy to get across uh, to consumers, uh, you know, we felt we'll cross that bridge and we'll deal with that, uh, that hurdle uh, better than us, kind of telling uh, a partial truth, if you will, and and that's what I think sets us apart between us and everybody else that's ever created a product uh, before us or, um, you know, has tried to, you know, I guess, come up with this solution uh, uh, prior.
1: Interesting. I appreciate that. My parents are doctors. My sister's are doctors, so I know all about the the medical uh, industry, if you will. And uh, I remember all this—the reps bringing samples and things like that. um... And yeah. I know it's important that the, the administration of the uh, particular uh, medicine is important. And I hear you say, enjoy within the hour before you start drinking, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which I like. <laughs> um, if you could put it in a powder form, that would help me a lot because uh, I never know when I'm going to start. Um, or maybe I just never finish. Perhaps that's the challenge. But let's talk about some of the ingredients that make this really um, beneficial for the body.
2: Yeah, for Sure. So uh, one thing, we are in the process of working on a powder form, so your dreams may come true um, sooner rather than later. Um, and as far as uh, the ingredients go, I think uh, a lot of the questions that we get, it's like, hey, what's the magic ingredient or what's the special sauce? And my response to that is, "Is uh, well, there isn't. They're all magical ingredients. <laughs> and the reason is because the body goes through so much and there's so many – Um, things that happen in each process the body does. There isn't just one, um, you know, uh, super ingredient that does all these magical things. Um, You know, the reality is that doesn't really exist per se. Um, You know, the body knows exactly how to process alcohol. So if you had one uh, glass of wine or you had one, uh, you know, uh, one beer or one uh, uh, shot of uh, liquor or what have you, you, you would do that. You know, have your dinner or what have you. You'd go to sleep and you'd wake up and I'd say 99.9% of the time you feel fine. And the reason is because your body already knows how to process alcohol. The problem is it only stores a certain amount of the ingredients, your B vitamins, your magnesium, your zinc, your chromium, your sodium, your potassium, um, your glutathione, which is uh, the most powerful antioxidant in the body stored in the liver. Um, You have all of these pieces. The body only stores a certain amount. So once we get to our fourth or fifth or sixth drink, <laughs> uh, the body had run out or is getting low on those items and that's why you wake up feeling like crap. All right. The body is uh, missing those those ingredients um, which is, uh, you know, keeps it so you don't feel uh, good. You're not, you know, you don't have all the energy normally uh, that you do. You don't feel as happy. You don't feel as, as awake. You don't feel as aware. And also there's still alcohol in your system. And so you do need all of these ingredients. And, and I think that's our special sauce is that we just said, okay, what does the body do, and we listened to that. We didn't try to get fancy and find, you know, some magical ingredient, some far sure. off place that you know somehow, you know, uh, you know, people have had since the 1600s, but they've been keeping it a secret. No, um, the body knows what it's doing. So we just wanted to figure out, well, why is the body getting to a point of failure, and can we assist?
1: Right on. And, um, you made yeah. a product to that. that is also delicious, and and it's in a uh, probably was it a seven ounce can? I forget. Eight point four uh, fluid ounces. Ounce. Yeah, and yeah. it's a nice little can. Uh, it reminds me of like the Starbucks uh, single shot uh, espresso or whatever it is. Um, but you have some cool flavors here, and it was really interesting to drink. And actually, I almost had a little lift. It gave me a little bit of a. I think B B vitamins give you a bump, don't they?
2: Yes, exactly. So. Um, the difference between us and, you know, a lot of the questions are around, is this an energy drink? It's not a traditional energy drink from the fact that it doesn't have caffeine. Stimulants. Taurine. Right. And B vitamins. Um, you know, we just have a, a, a ton of B vitamins. And so those give you, uh, you know, metabolic or cellular energy so you can feel awake. It's it's what makes you feel alert and have mental clarity and mental awareness, uh, mental acuity. Um, and so the... the that's a lot of uh, you know where you get that feeling from, why you feel awake, why you feel good, you feel clear, is definitely from those B vitamins.
1: I like it, because uh, alcohol makes you feel something entirely different. I'm king of the world, all that stuff. <laughs> um, exactly. You have a website called drinkbefore.com. Tell me the flavors you have.
2: So right now what we have uh, in market is uh, we have an orange, which was our original flavor, and then recently added the past couple of months was a berry and a grape.
1: Yeah, those are the three, three flavors that I received. Um, uh, and I tried two of them. I gave one to, uh, my partner and she, she enjoyed it as well. Um, well, this is really cool. I, I appreciate the, the work and the, uh, the reason behind, uh, this new product, uh, what to drink before you drink. It's called drinkbefore.com. Three flavors and, um, it's, it really works. Now, it doesn't take place of irresponsibility, <laughs> Absolutely. but it's a nice little uh, boost to to help you uh, make it through the next day. Uh, John Mansour, uh, CEO and co-founder of uh, What to Drink Before We Drink. Hey, thanks for, so much for joining me on Happy Hour Radio.
2: Awesome. Thanks for having me, Chris. Yeah,
1: good Appreciate stuff, folks. Uh, I'm sure it'll be on Amazon, and you probably get that one-hour Amazon shipping in case you don't have any. So, uh, hey, check it out. I've got another great product coming up. It's called Smoke and Mary. So stick around. Be right back on Happy Hour Radio.
0: regular guys, separated by 20 years, and a full head of hair. Mark Lee and Van Camp, weekdays 9 to noon, Talk Radio 570, KVI. It's KVI Want to Know Weekends, and you're listening to Happy Hour Radio. Now back to Seattle, Somalia, Christopher Chan. (laughs)
1: <laughs> That's me. Hope you're having a great Saturday night. And, uh, you know, summer is here. This is it. This is our uh, Seasons in the Sun here in Seattle. And so you'll probably be doing some entertaining, uh, obviously probably enjoying a bunch of adult beverages. Uh, of course, we've got plenty to talk about. Um, one of the products that uh, I get a chance to, to fly around the world. Well, not a chance. I mean, I pay for it. <laughs> but I, I get a chance to attend uh, some of these fantastic beverage conferences and uh, wine and spirits wholesalers conferences and vin expo and things like that. And it's really cool to meet entrepreneurs. Um, Obviously, the big brands tend to dominate the landscape, it seems, but there's always these these people that have an inspiration and they're producing some brand new spirit, whether it's made out of prickly pear, cactus, or they've got a brand new indigenous grape that they're trying to introduce, or they're doing some cool, just like you heard, the uh, before you drink, uh, what to drink before you drink, a little hangover cure kind of thing. And then, of course, there are those people that make great mixers and condiments. And uh, I think that's always the best because we may talk about great spirits and, and great uh, products, but when you 're doing mixing, you want to be sure that you 're not using Schweppes I mean hey, it was great a hundred years ago, but Schweppes is garbage man it 's corn high fructose corn syrup, and so is mr and mrs t s it's it's the same thing you 're being it's adulterated, and I want something that's really, really pure. And I found that. Um, it was kind of by chance because I didn't expect to find this Bloody Mary mix. It's called Smoke and Mary, um, which is, you know, it's not Smoke and Mary Jane, but I, I can see how that could be confused here because uh, she's from California, I believe. Her name's Lori Nado, and uh, she is the p- proprietor, the uh, inventor, the namesake behind, uh, well, it's Lori, it's not Mary, it's Mary, it's not Lori. Um, hey, Lori Nado, welcome to Happy Hour.
3: Well, thank you very much. I love being on here with you
1: yes um let's talk about smoke and Mary first of all um who are you and what do you do?
3: who am i well huh, I actually am i uh, I've become this uh serial entrepreneur over the last several years and I've had several careers in different industries. but I actually started this by accident and it wasn't uh, I wasn't this person that was a big bloody mary fan you know i would have them every once in a while and they always sucked oh. you know they sucked because they got well i like to talk
1: so oh, right. when
3: i go to drink my drink the ice is melted and there's no flavor left so i'm like these are awful so you know i had it started out i had a whole bunch of tomatoes left over and i didn't know what to do with them outside of all the sauces and salsas and all that other stuff you mean you're growing, I you're growing
1: tomatoes you're growing tomatoes i was
3: helping out a greenhouse okay greenhouse that had a whole bunch so um that's a long story but so i ended up with a whole bunch of tomatoes and somebody said one of my neighbors said why don't you make bloody mary mix and of course it's because it never crossed my mind because it wasn't my top of mind cocktail and basically i took these tomatoes and then i started smoking them because i was actually smoking my salsa as well and it was fantastic And I just started throwing all these different seasonings and spices and everything you can imagine in the refrigerator and in the spice cabinet. And, you know, five years later, 16 revisions later, I'm in production in a commercial commercial kitchen, which was pretty amazing and never, ever intended, intended for it to go this far. But now here we are and we're very well loved and, um, and it comes down really to the quality of the ingredients that we use.
1: Well, very cool. So, you were working in a greenhouse, so do you have a green thumb, I take it? I mean, you you were were you learning was it an internship or were you helping? you you oh, no. heard there was a harvest.
3: <laughs> Actually, it's a really that's a even funnier story. I grew up on, on a dairy farm, so my mom always had the really really great gardens, but I was helping these friends move these tomatoes at markets. Um, I wasn't actually growing them, but my husband and I, and that was when we lived in Park City, Utah, and we actually bought a ranch here in Northern California, and I bought this ranch thinking, okay, this is great. I can grow my own tomatoes. We can do all this ourselves. that would be perfect. So I plant, I think, 60 tomato plants
1: Holy when smokes. we get here.
3: So you'd think I'd have a lot of tomatoes. I couldn't get I think I maybe got 20 or 40 tomatoes total. Oh, my! That's it. So then I decided, you know, maybe this isn't my thing. <laughs> so I found a really good, uh, since we're in California, we obviously have some of the best, if not the best produce in all the states. And I found a really, really good pro- producer and was very fortunate to come upon them and that's how the tomatoes are really grown by the people that know what
1: they're doing. Surround yourself yeah. with experts and you'll be a winner is what, <laughs> that's one of those old adages. Uh, congratulations Absolutely. on that. Um, it's called Smoke and and uh, you make one product, but you have a couple more coming out. But before we talk about those, you said 16 iterations. Now, I'm sensitive to natural flavors. Uh, I remember there's liquid smoke, which is just terrible for anybody. Um, this is real smoke flavor, right?
3: It is. Um, it's ours is uh, we actually our liquid our liquid smoke <laughs> it's actually a natural hickory smoke that is created for us in Tennessee right and it's created naturally it takes us it takes four weeks for them to make the smoke for us so you know that's and they also make the smoke that we will be using in our future products that we'll talk about in a second but yeah we definitely use all everything as natural as, as possible for commercial production, and the smoke is you know some of the stuff on the market that you get, and I don't know some of the brands if I even want to mention brands, but stuff you're getting in the grocery stores that was originally what we were using outside of me actually smoking the tomatoes, um but it turns bitter. Yeah. Once you open the bottle, it gets bitter and it changes flavors, and I'm like, "Oh, this can't happen." Caramel
1: coloring and all that too, and it's interesting because I, I ran across a recipe on how to make your own liquid smoke a couple of years ago, and I thought it was pretty cool because you thought it was something made in a lab or in a uh, you know in some factory or something, but really it is a nat- You have to actually burn wood to make liquid smoke, and so the stuff that you have in Hickory in Tennessee uh, certainly uh, shines well in this beautiful Bloody Mary mix. Can you tell me some of the ingredients, or are you a Colonel Sanders kind of thing?
3: So I'll tell you what the ingredients are.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
3: it's fresh tomatoes, fresh lemons, fresh limes, fresh horseradish. Um, all these things are all grown here in California. Um, most of them in the central, central California, because that's where all the farmland is left. Um, and then, you know, we've got your typical lean parents. And then of course we've got pr- proprietary spices and the hickory smoke. You know, that's, those are pretty much and we use a beef base so we're we're not vegan um and you know that's you know we found that there's not there are some vegans out there but really of all the people <laughs> that we've met there's not that many you know, Uh okay, good. One percent. Uh, exactly. Maybe.
1: They are the one percent. How about that? Um, you know, and I tell you, it, fresh is, uh, fresh is the key to any great, uh, product to me because I would used to, um, host uh, a, a huge, a 20 foot build your own Bloody Mary bar. And it was important, and I would have all these different ingredients, and I would even make my own Bloody Mary mix. But um, nothing to your extent, because I didn't want to work that hard. <laughs> but I knew that if, no, we had no. all, if we had all the fresh ingredients, that people could make their own Bloody Mary. Now, I got to tell you, I was at uh, one of those airport lounges. Um, you know, when you, you, you fly too much, you get, they try to wine and dine you. The gal said, yes. <laughs> there is a Bloody Mary with bourbon. And I said, no way. That would never work. And I see here on your com, you've got some recipes here. Of course, you've got the Smoky Mary Maria, the Annie, the Molly, the Belle, the Ginny, and the Graciela, uh, which is mezcal, gin, bourbon, whiskey, rum, and tequila uh, uh, in backwards order. But I tell you, I could not believe that she put Jack Daniels in my Bloody Mary. And it was freaking awesome. Right. It was yeah, delicious. It worked. Especially with the smoke.
3: Um, it goes really, really well. We, well, in most, you know, like a lot of the whiskeys, you've got the peat of the whiskey.
1: For scotch, yeah.
3: With it. And it just goes so well. And, you know, the other thing that we do that's really fun is we cook with it.
1: Oh, yeah. And I can see that. Pasta. Fact,
3: right, yeah. Oh, we do pastas. We do fish. guacamole. Fish, Chipino, Ceviche, mm. and Seattle's really big for all your seafood. And we do, you know, shrimp cocktail, oysters, anything and everything with it. In fact, right now we have, uh, we marinated overnight a pork shoulder and it's been on our Traeger smoker all day. And we're going to be shredding that and using the leftover marinade to make barbecue
1: sauce. Okay, I'm coming down right now. Uh, love it. You got two more plaques. We got just a little bit of time. Tell me about the two products coming out.
3: So um, the next product is going to be our green uh, our green oh, one, yeah. which is called Envy, cool. or green with Envy. It's going to be using green tomatoes. And um, the spice on that, so on on the red one, which um, we have our original, Quickly. that is a chip, chipotle cayenne. And then green is going to be with the green tomatoes. And our little tart is going to be fruits, tomatoes, and smoke and heat. Awesome. And they're both just all of them absolutely
1: fantastic. I'm excited for that green one because I I love that you had a good zing, good uh, spice, good heat level to the smoke and Mary. And of course, the smoke, it's per, it's prominent, but it's not overbearing. Um, uh, but you know, you just fill the big glass and put more booze. It always works out. Um, the Smoke and dot com. Mm-hmm. The founder is Lori. Is it Nado or Nado or how do I say it? Nado. Nado. Uh, and I will do. And uh, thank you, uh, Lori Nado. Hey, this is great. I appreciate it. Smoke and Mary dot com. Thanks for joining me on. Happy Hour Radio.
3: Thank you so much for having me. Have a great rest of your day.
1: Yes, it'll be great. Uh, of course, it's smoking Mary time, and Bloody Mary's worked for me. I always put white rum in my Marys, but that's another story. Hey, folks, stick around. we got lots more fun on Happy Hour Radio.
0: America first and holding the powerful, accountable, Sean Hannity. Weekdays, 6 to 9 p.m. Talk Radio 570 KVI. You're in the know with KVI Want to Know Weekends. Here's more Happy Hour Radio with Christopher Chan.
1: All right, folks, welcome back to Happy Hour Radio. Time for uh, round three. And uh, as you know, Alaska Airlines is based here in the Northwest. And one of the destinations they've had recently in the last, I don't know, 15, 18 months has been Cuba. Cuba. That's right. Uh, Habana. And uh, I've always been curious about it. Of course, we've had this great restaurant called Paseo, known for Cuban sandwiches. But Cuban food is so food is so much more than that. And I am super pleased uh, and excited to, to dive into that uh, island nation and learn more from um, a, uh, a veteran of the culinary world and also a current resident of Cuba or lived there for eight years. Her name is Imogene Tondra. And uh, she is, uh, well, she's on the line today. And she just had a new cookbook. She co-authored through the cookbook called Cuba, the cookbook with Madeline vasquez Galvez and of course Imogene Tondra. Hey Imogene, welcome to Happy Hour.
4: Thanks for having me, Chris.
1: I'm uh, super excited. So as we were chatting, you have a master's degree in food science from the University of Havana, was it?
4: Well, yes. It's not food science, uh, exactly. I got a master's at the University of Havana and I studied food culture and the private sector. So kind of how those two things intersected over the last 40 plus years.
1: And are you a journalist by trade, or have you written a, a blog or uh, other cookbooks? Or?
4: I, actually, I worked in journalism, I worked in radio, um, but this is my first published work. And, um, and yeah, it was just published last month.
1: Excellent. And I understand you were just here in Seattle and how funny I know that we are, our schedules didn't exactly coincide. Um, but you were actually launching this book in at one of our local bookstores of which we have many, although they seem to be disappearing. Uh but this book is called Cuba the Cookbook. It is absolutely a colorful tome. It's a heavy tome. It must be, I don't know, five hundred pages or so. Uh, it looks like four hundred something. Um, but this is a big book for a first time out.
4: Yeah, well when Fighting um hired myself and Madalena Vasquez, my um, co-author, they said that for the the series, um, they required a minimum of 350 recipes. And at first, that seemed like so many. Uh, Cuban food today is not known for its variety. Sometimes there are issues with scarcity, and it's hard to find some ingredients sometimes. So it, it was a little bit overwhelming at first, but then the more research we did, um, it was completely possible to to get that number of recipes and and really important to us to find some of these older more traditional recipes that have been lost or are becoming lost over time and um, and wanting to include those to, to make sure that they don't disappear.
1: Well, how fun is that actually to have to cook 350 different recipes and probably perhaps more than once just to get it right and get all that uh, perfect photo uh, opportunity right. And you've got some great pictures here. It's a colorful book. Um, let's talk about Cuba as a nation and, and its history of culinary influences. Can you share with that with us? Definitely.
4: Um, one of the things that we talk about in the introduction is that Cuba is more influenced in a lot of ways um, by its history and different migrations than its geography. Um, there are some coastal regions and fishing communities, but for the most part, um, that's one of the first things that visitors say, well, why isn't there more fish? Um, but that <laughs> kind of goes back to to history. When, when the, um, the Spanish colonizers arrived, there was an indigenous population on the island, but it was not very numerous and it was dispersed. And the Spanish basically wiped out all of the indigenous people. Um, so the fact that this um that these people were eradicated meant that the the food became more distanced from its natural habitat. So the fishing techniques that they had were replaced by livestock and pork and a lot of Spanish influence. Um and then the Spanish also brought uh African slaves who contributed a lot to the cuisine. So Um, You can see that in the use of yams, plantains, taro root, okra. All of those are very typical ingredients today. Um, So those are kind of the three um, main contributions to Cuban food, but then different migrations continued. um, After the revolution in Haiti, a lot of um, the French colonizers came to the eastern part of Cuba and contributed um, a lot to the development of coca and coffee plantations. And then later, starting in around 1847, the first Chinese came um, as indentured servants. And they were very instrumental in setting up some of the first uh, food stands and mm-hmm. small restaurants. And to this day, there's there's a Chinatown in Havana. A lot of that food is kind of mixed, some authentic Chinese food, but much more um, with a, kind of a Cuban-style but um, but some of the use of certain ingredients like bok choy is something really common in Cuban food, and that came from the Chinese. And actually, rice. Um, there's there's documentation that rice was uh, being cultivated in Cuba as early as 1600, but it was really the Chinese who helped popularize it. And today, rice is a huge part of the Cuban diet. And then later, there were other Haitians and Jamaicans, and um, and then uh, after the what we call in Cuba the Cuban-Spanish-American War, um, when Cuba supposedly had independence, but was really basically like a, what is called a neo-colony of the United States. There was a lot of U.S. presence. Um, then some of um, some of that food influenced the Cuban diet. And then after 1959, after um, the revolution in Cuba, there were of course political ties between the island and the Soviet Union. So there are recipes in this book for borscht and beef stroganoff and. You know, recipes that today aren't especially common, but they were at a moment in history, and we wanted to include them for that reason. So that's a little bit of uh, some that's of the a lot.
1: That's a lot. You're expanding uh, close to 400 plus years, etc. And uh, you know, it's pretty interesting to, to hear how many different um, unique countries, whether it be Russia, Asia, of course, France, of uh, uh, Africa, and uh, of course the the Spanish themselves. There is a lot going on there, and so you you mo- you almost have everything there. I could think French pastry, French bread, of course. You've got the Chinese, so you've got some probably fermented things. Um, looking at the cookbook, it's it's really really fun. Of course, you start out with uh, the Cuban pantry, which I think I'd like to go into. Tell me about some of the basic ingredients that most Cuban households would have for um, basic day-to-day preparation.
4: Right. Well, we did talk about, um, actually, bef- the first um, ingredient in the list of the, the Cuban pantry is not an ingredient itself, but is the ban marie or the baño de maria, yeah. um, which is a very common technique in Cuba, and not everyone knows um, you know, they they might know it by its French name, but it's basically just when the pan or dish of food is placed in a larger pot of pan, um, it, which has water in it. And it can be done either on the stovetop or in the oven. Now, in most cases, Cubans use the stovetop a lot more than the oven. And that goes back to times when ovens weren't very common. Um, but also, even if they're working, people just kind of prefer to use the stovetop and will often use their ovens for special occasions or to... Sure. To hold their pots and pans to store uh, them. So we talk about the baño maría. Um, we also mention um, the pressure cooker because that's uh, an appliance that you find in almost every Cuban kitchen, and you, of course, have to have to adjust for cooking time. Um, <laughs> some of the ingredients: uh, bitter orange, um, which you know I, I had forgotten that that's not something that's very common here in the U.S. Right. I thought, oh, everyone knows that, and then I and then as we continued. Um, uh, describing it in different recipes, the editor said, no, you need to explain what it is. Um, I've
1: been to Valencia you know, see yeah, all those civil right. oranges. And it's,
4: it's common. Um, it's very common in Cuba. Um, and then, you know, things like um, culantro, which
3: <laughs> a lot of times
4: people think it's like a typo, like they think we meant cilantro, but no, it's culantro. Um, it's a totally different herb. Um, the Latin name is eryngium phot- photidum. Um and it's it's indigenous to Cuba and grows. Um, it has kind of these long leaves with jagged edges, and it's used in beans and soups and.
1: But do they have um, cilantro?
4: Oh yeah, cilantro is okay. also very popular. All right. Um, but it just it kept coming up because. You know, the copy editor
1: thought it was a typo. said, no, it's a different... That's just, you know, uh, cute, Spanglish or whatever. Um, Looking at many other ingredients, you have coconut, you've got uh, Cuban oregano, you've got milk, oil, onions, peppers, pumpkin sofrito, which is something very unique to this uh, uh, Hispanic world, Uh, tomato sauce, vinegar and um, some salted or dried pork and beef, which is pretty neat. Uh, that's a lot of different flavors you have. Of course, you have the acid, you have the savory, uh, you have the, the fresh and herbaceous, and, of course, um, coconuts. Um, they have a bunch of fruit that grow on the island, right? Do they have many exports from agriculture business or agricultural industry?
4: Um, well, because of the history kind of of being a monocrop sugar-producing country, um, the a lot of the indigenous fruits have... Um, not been cultivated as much as they could be. Um, so no, the short answer to your question is no. But and, and there's actually a lot of efforts to kind of um, to re,
1: reintroduce to in, it,
4: increase the cultivation. Sure. And, um, because you know, that, like what I was talking about with all of these foreign influences, that means that the diet is being distanced from the natural habitat, and so sometimes there are um, you know tendencies not to value the the native plants and and something like during the years when there was a heavy US presence in Cuba we found all these old recipes for marmalades made out of plums and apricots and all of these imported fruits and and very few um, that included all of the delicious tropical fruit on the island.
1: Wild. Well, I love it. Um, I'm speaking with Imogene Tondra, who is the co-author of Cuba, the cookbook. I'm sure it's available at our, our big monster uh, store called Amazon. Uh, but when we come back from this break, we're going to chat about some of the great recipes, uh, that some of the favorite ones that she, uh, Imogene has, and uh, get some questions in. So stick around, folks. Be right back here on Happy Hour Radio.
0: Start your day the right way. The Commute with Carlson, live and local, weekdays 6 to 9 a.m. Talk Radio 570 KVI. Now more KVI Want to Know Weekends. Back to Happy Hour Radio with Christopher Chan.
1: All right, hope you're having a great Saturday
0: night, and uh, I think it's time for some great food. I've got
1: Cuba, the cookbook. Uh, co-author Imogene Tondra is on the line. We're chatting about um, some of the cultures that uh, shaped the uh, Cuban f- food culinary uh, landscape. Um, and I'm thinking about some of the, we talked about indigenous fruits that are, are kind of been overlooked over the years. Uh, but Imogene, tell me, give me the breakdown on, on proteins. What, what are the Cubans eating? I, I want to say it's pork-based.
4: Well, that's a good guess. And just to give you a little reference, a traveler from the United States in uh, the 1800s made the observation that Cubans seemed to eat meat for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. So a very meat-based diet is, is not a new thing. Um, that doesn't mean that people are always eating this, the amount of meat that they'd like to be, um, but there is definitely a lot of pork. People love pork. It's by far the national favorite. Um, the chicken is also very common uh-huh. um, and we we talk about that actually in the in the pantry of the cookbook because people will often um cook it, boil it and season it and then and use it for various dishes um so there's also fish good fresh fish um but not as common as as you might think, considering it's an island yeah. so I would say maybe oh i don't know sixty percent pork and chicken and then the rest between fish. Beef is not very accessible. Um, And so actually in, in the recipes um, in our cookbook, some of the original recipes call for beef, but we make a note saying it could be substituted with pork because that's pretty common, including one of the dishes that I would recommend uh, to anyone visiting Cuba, which is ropa vieja, which is shredded beef. Um, Ah. It's a very, very common um, Cuban dish. And, and again, it's, traditionally done with beef, but you'll even see it in some restaurants um, with pork instead. Um, and so it's usually with skirt steak and seasoned with leaves, white onion, garlic. Onion and garlic is very important in a lot of cloves, uh, mm, parsley, oregano, some pepper, and then it's also cooked with bell peppers and carrots and... Um,
1: and a little bit of cumin. Wow. Uh, well, I'm reading the uh, uh, the introduction or the, the the table of contents here. You've got appetizer, soups, rice, pastas, and pizzas, which I never would have guessed to be Cuban. Uh, uh, and fish, poultry, meat, vegetables, legumes, eggs, of course, salads, sauces and dressings, sweets and desserts, drinks. And um, you had led some uh, 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 was ex- culinary exchanges with American chefs. But you just mentioned that that shredded beef dish. But if people were trying to f- have a truly authentic Cuban experience, what one or two dishes out of this 350 great cookbook dishes you have here might you suggest for somebody?
4: Um, Well, definitely the tostones are very traditional. Um, Tostones are just fried um, green plantains. They're fried first for just a couple minutes on each side, cut kind of thick, like maybe an inch thick, and then you remove them from the frying pan, um, mash them with your hand or your mortar and pestle and, you know, Um, and then put them back on the the frying pan for another few minutes. Um, Interesting. And kind of a more sophisticated adaptation of that, which you'll find in a lot of restaurants, are tostones rellenos, or stuffed.
3: Oh, yes. Um,
4: And so you can put ceviche or uh, ham and cheese or or those kinds of fillings in those. Um, That's very typical. Um, I would also talk about ajiaco, which is um, a really thick, succulent stew, which has been used to describe... um, described the kind of mixture of ethnicities in Cuba because the ingredients were contributed by the Spanish, the indigenous people, and african slaves so those that 's what I mentioned at the beginning where um, those groups came together to create this this cuisine and then uh, congri is just rice and beans um, cooked together, very very common um, red beans and rice and uh, it also has some pork in it, and of course peppers and onions and garlic and is uh, a very typical staple part of the Cuban diet.
1: Wow, you've got my mouth salivating here. Um, is there a website that, that shares some of these recipes that people can go and find more about the book?
4: Um, I suppose just through the, the publisher, Fiden, Phaidon, P-H-A-I-D-O-N. Um, that's probably the best way. And You mentioned earlier Amazon, which is a good option, but also since I was just in Seattle a couple weeks ago, I would just mention that the book is also at Third Place Books, where I did a small event, and Elliott Bay, where I signed a few copies, as well as Book Larder. So those were all lovely bookstores, and I encourage any local listeners to.
1: Go to their bookstore. I encourage that as well. It's like taking care of, you know, as, as being Happy Hour Radio, we talk about wine shops, and we prefer to go to the smaller wine shop versus the total wine and more. Uh, but this has been such a treat. I was truly enthralled just to see this beautiful, colorful tome come my way. I'm I'm into Cuban. I'm half Chinese and a bunch of other stuff, so uh, actually a little bit Spanish as well. But Imogene Tondra, uh, the co-author of Cuba the Cookbook, thanks so much for sharing this story with Happy Hour Radio.
4: Thank you for having me.
1: Right, that's that's a real treat. Well, we've had three call-ins today. Of course, we had uh, Before You Drink, we've got Bloody Mary Mix, and now Cuba the Cookbook. Um, get out there. We've got a cu- couple of uh, Cuban-inspired restaurants around Seattle. I invite you to check them out. And, of course, check out the book, Cuba the Cookbook, uh, Book Larder, and uh, L.A. Bay Books. Uh, and there's one more, but we'll figure it out when you hear this story, this story again. I'll see you next week right here on Happy Hour Radio.